And I got to tell you, it's a breath of fresh air when you compare it to chapter 13. In chapter 13, you know, we, we saw the dragon, which was Satan, the Antichrist, the false prophet. We saw unprecedented worldwide deception. We saw people lining up to take the mark of the beast and to worship his image. Uh, just really dark stuff. And then chapter 14, we see the lamb, angels, the redeemed saints, uh, you know, the redeemed saints, I should say, genuine worship, and those that are sealed by God. Chapter 13, there's falsehood, wickedness, corruption, and blasphemy. In chapter 14, there's truth, righteousness, purity, and praise. And aren't you glad to know that although we live in a world of darkness where we see so much of the enemy right now all around us working and all, don't you know that, you know, his days are numbered? And someday, and someday probably soon, we are going to see a world that is just filled with praise, filled with light, filled with love. I mean, just from one end to the other. And so chapter 14, though, is a little different. Some people have a problem with chapter 14. They're not quite sure what to make of it. Uh, but let me just say this. It seems as though that chapter 14 is a kind of a preview of coming attractions. I mean, it's going to be highlighting things that are going to take place in chapters 15 through 19. So in that regard, it becomes kind of a table of contents for the rest of the book. All right, just keep that in mind, because if you don't kind of keep that in mind when you read chapter 14, it is kind of puzzling, because it talks about things that haven't yet happened, and you read 14, and then you go on, and you read things that, you know, 14 talks about as though, as though they were done, and yet here we're studying them in chapters 15 through 19. Well, Chapter 14 will put things in the past tense because that's a little thing in the, in the Greek to communicate the absolute certainty of something. Even if it hasn't taken place yet, God will speak about it in the past tense, indicating it's a done deal. All right? Anyways, chapter 14, verse 1. Then I looked, and behold, a lamb standing on Mount Zion, and with him 144,000 having his father's name written on their foreheads. Now, we were first introduced to this 144,000 back in chapter 7, remember? How that before the seventh seal was broken, God said to the angels, seal uh, 144,000, 12,000 from each of the 12 tribes, in preparation then for the seventh seal to be broken. In other words, these 144,000 Jewish believers... That's what they are, 144,000 Jewish believers 
are going to be used by God in some very powerful ways during the tribulation period. In fact, they're going to have a pretty phenomenal ministry. And yet, because they're going to be ministering during a time of great judgment, God is going to seal them, as we saw in chapter 7, and he is going to seal them with uh, a mark on their forehead. We learn here that it's really the name of God the Father. Now, of course, this is in drastic contrast to chapter 13, where we saw uh, the followers of the Antichrist to show their loyalty to him. They took his mark on their forehead. We're going to look, look at that a little more in detail as we move through chapter 14. But it's just, again, interesting to remember that no matter how bad things get on the earth, God always has his faithful remnant. We saw it in Israel's day. Elijah thought he was the only one left who loved God and served God and was loyal to him. And uh, he was convinced the whole nation had gone after Baal and Ashtoreth and was just a big mess. And so he kind of ran away and, and said, Lord, you know, and God appeared to him. And he said, Lord, you know, I'm the only one left. I, I'm the only guy who loves you. Everybody else has turned their, you know, toward idolatry. And, and God says, I, I've got 7,000 in Israel that haven't bowed the knee to Baal nor kissed his image. God has always got his faithful remnant. He's going to have his faithful remnant here in the tribulation period as well. There is always going to be a channel for truth. There's always going to be some light. God never leaves the world totally in darkness. And he's trying to use the light to bring those who are in darkness to him. Now we see these 144,000 standing with Jesus, the Lamb, on Mount Zion. The question is, which Mount Zion is this? Is it the earthly Mount Zion in Jerusalem? Or is it the heavenly Mount Zion. And there are very good commentators who believe this is a picture uh, of Mount Zion uh, in Israel. Uh, I personally believe, and I could be wrong, but I personally believe that this is talking about heavenly Mount Zion. Uh, Galatians 4.26, Paul said, But the Jerusalem above is free, which is the mother of us all. Talking about the new Jerusalem, which is, uh, which is in heaven. Going to be coming down as we're going to live in that new city someday, but the new Jerusalem. But Hebrews 12, verse 22 says, But you have come to Mount Zion and to the city of the living God, the heavenly Jerusalem, to an innumerable company of angels, and so on. So I just wanted you to see that the Bible talks about Mount Zion on earth and then in heaven. And so I believe that right now this Mount Zion is talking about the Mount Zion in heaven. And um, this scene kind of anticipates the day when Jesus does come to the earth, though. Right now he's, he's on Mount Zion in heaven, but he's going to come to Mount Zion in earth where he's going to establish a kingdom. He's going to rule from Jerusalem over the face of the whole earth. So this kind of looks forward to that coronation day, all right, if you will, when he will come back and he will you know, reign visibly from Jerusalem. Right now, though, our Lord Jesus Christ is enthroned in heavenly Zion. Psalm 2, verse 6, the Father said, Yet I have set my king on my holy hill of Zion. And I believe that at that point in Psalm 2, verse 6, God the Father is talking about the fact that right now, Jesus is at the Father's right hand. The Father said, Ask of me, and I'll give you the nations for your possession. And he's going to come back and take possession of those nations, even as the Father has given them to him. So right now, in heaven at the Father's right hand, 
but coming back to the earth to establish a kingdom. Now, as I said, many in, uh, good commentators interpret Mount Zion in verse 14, verse 1, or excuse me, chapter 14, verse 1, to be literal Mount Zion in Israel. And they, they interpret it that way because to place the 144,000 in heaven means that they were martyred by the Antichrist. And that can't be, they say, because they were sealed by God in chapter 7, which means they, they were indestructible. I mean, if God seals them, then how could the Antichrist kill them, is the idea. And that's why most commentators kind of see this as a scene on the earth. And I'll show you why I don't feel that way. But um, let me just say this. First of all, God sealed these 144,000 Jewish evangelists to protect them from the judgments of God that were going to be poured out upon the earth to judge the earth dwellers, right? And the reason he sealed these servants of his from his judgment is because the Bible says God will not punish the righteous with the wicked, right? I mean, that's the whole idea behind the rapture happening before the tribulation period begins, because the tribulation period is God's judgment that is going to be coming upon this earth. We have accepted Christ. You know, we have made peace with God. Our sins have been washed away by the blood of the Lamb. Therefore, there's no need for God to punish us with the wicked. And in fact, he promises never to do that. So before uh, Jesus breaks the seventh seal on the scroll, which unleashes greater judgments upon the earth, God seals these 144,000 Jewish evangelists. And uh, so to keep them protected from his judgment. And yet, even though God seals them to protect them from his judgment, I don't really see that that makes them immune from the wrath of the Antichrist, though. Now, I do believe that these 144,000 Jewish evangelists are indestructible from the Antichrist until they finish their mission, until they finish their ministry, just like the two witnesses in chapter 11 were indestructible until they finished their ministry. Remember chapter 11, verses 5 and 6, talk about that nobody could hurt these guys. But it says in verse 7, But when they finish their testimony, the beast that ascends out of the bottomless pit, the Antichrist, will make war against them, overcome them, and kill them. And then we come to chapter 13, and we read in verse 7, that it was granted to him, the Antichrist, to make war with the saints and to overcome them. And authority was given to him over every tribe, tongue, and nation which of course includes Israel. And some would say, well, but yeah, but these 144,000 are supernaturally protected from the Antichrist. That might be. I just know for sure they were protected against God's judgments. I don't necessarily see something in here that indicates they were immune from any of the Antichrist's wrath. And so in chapter 13, verse 7, we see the Antichrist makes war against the people of God and begins to kill them. And then we come to chapter 14. It opens up with 144,000 Jewish evangelists standing in heaven after having finished their ministry, I believe. And verse 3 seems to indicate that to me. It says, they sang, as it were, a new song before the what? Throne. Before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song unless the hundred, uh, except the 144,000 who were redeemed where? From the earth. So it sounds like they're no longer on the earth. They're with the Lamb in heaven. He's standing, okay. The last time we saw the Lamb, Jesus, standing was in what chapter? Chapter 5, when he takes the scroll out of the Father's right hand, right? He is looked at, John lo looks at him and sees a Lamb as it had been slain. 
Now, when Jesus comes down to the earth, is he going to come down like a lamb or like a what? Lion. You know, if this was Mount Zion was on earth, I would have imagined that God would have said, John would have said, and I saw a lion standing on the earth and with him 144,000. The fact that, you know, it's a lamb and Mount Zion, I kind of see this as being a heavenly Mount Zion. All right. Verse 2. John said, And I heard a voice from heaven, like the voice of many waters, and like the voice of a loud thunder, and I heard the sound of harpists playing their harps. Whenever you see, you know, in Revelation, you know, I heard a voice like the sound of many waters, like, you know, like Niagara Falls. I mean, just that loud, booming sound, okay? Uh, or, you know, um, like thunder. It usually is talking about the voice of God. We saw that in Revelation chapter 1, verses 15, verse 15, chapter 4, verse 5. And remember when Jesus was uh, on the earth, and at one point it sounded like it thundered almost. But the Father said from heaven, this is my beloved Son in whom I'm well pleased, right? Sometimes the Father will boom from heaven his, his uh, acknowledgement uh, of something or his... Um, well, let me put it this way. In the chapter 25 of Matthew's gospel, verse 21, it says that someday we're going to stand before God, and if we have been faithful in ministry, he's going to say to us, well done, good and faithful servants. And I kind of imagine that that's what he's saying to these 144,000. You know, well done. Well done. You know, because they finished their ministry faithfully. Verse 3. They sang, as it were, a new song before the throne before the four living creatures and the elders. And no one could learn that song except the 144,000 who were redeemed from the earth. Why could no one else sing the song of the 144,000? Well, because it was a song proclaiming God's goodness and faithfulness to them throughout their days on earth during the tribulation period when they ministered and God, you know, watched over them and used them and, and made sure that they completed the work he had given them to do. And that's why they alone could sing this song, because they alone were the ones that observed the Father's work in their lives during this time. David said in Psalm 40, verse 3, He has put a new song in my mouth. Praise to our God. Many will see it in fear and will trust in the Lord. You know, I believe that God wants to put a new song in all of our mouths. But for that to happen, we have to trust him to bring us through our own personal tribulation periods. You know, just the adversities, the trials, the tribulations that we go through on the earth for Jesus. What we, we need to do is, during those times, they could either make us bitter or better, right? And if you really want to watch God bring you through it and give glory to God on the other side of this tribulation that you go through, then you've got to be open to seeing God work and to realize, look, if God didn't allow me to taste some tribulation, I wouldn't grow in my faith. If it was all blue skies and rose-colored pathways, I mean, we would, we would not grow. Again, the Arabs have a proverb, all sunshine makes a desert. We need some rain in our lives. We need some tribulation. It gets us on our knees. It keeps us close to God. It uh, keeps us from being entangled in the cares of this life. And as we look to God through the tribulation, and we just keep our eyes on Him, and as the Bible says, in everything give thanks, and we just thank God. Not, 
you know, not for the situation necessarily, but in the situation, I thank him. Knowing he's got good intended through it, he's teaching me things. And if I just look to him and keep praising him, I'm going to come through it. And on the other side, I'm going to be, he's going to put a new song in my heart. Praise to my God for how faithful he was to me in bringing me through those times of personal tribulation. So don't get jealous that they have their own song. We all have a song, but it's all praise to our God. Now, verse 4 says, These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. These are the ones who follow the Lamb wherever He goes. These were redeemed from among men, being firstfruits to God and to the Lamb. It says, These are the ones who were not defiled with women, for they are virgins. Now, what does that mean? Well, it can have a literal or a spiritual meaning, and I kind of think in this context it's both. Let me give you the literal interpretation first. The phrase defiled with women does not imply that, that sex within marriage is evil because Hebrews chapter 13, verse 4 says it's not. Sex in the context of marriage is holy, it's pure, it's something God has ordained, all right? I just believe that what's being said here is that he, these 144,000 men are unmarried, okay, that they are single, and there's a reason for that. During the tribulation period, we have to understand, as we've been studying this, we do know, but we realize it's going to be a totally horrific time. It's going to be a time of great distress and persecution and cataclysmic judgments. Uh, it wouldn't be wise for these men who are serving the Lord in such an important ministry with everything going on that the Antichrist has thrown at them and God is bringing down on the earth. It, it wouldn't be wise to have a family and bring children into the world during this period of time. You remember how that the prophet Jeremiah lived in a very difficult time himself. The time just prior to the Babylonian captivity and then during the Babylonian captivity. And God had called him for a special ministry, of course. He was a prophet. And because uh, the nation had become so apostate, so uh, immoral and idolatrous, here was Jeremiah, the lone prophet of God, pretty much, speaking truth, when all the other false prophets were telling the people what they wanted to hear. So when Jeremiah spoke the truth, everyone hated him because it was negative, you know? People want to hear positive things. And Jeremiah just kept telling them, you know, you better get your lives right because God's going to judge you by bringing the Chaldeans, the Babylonians in on you. And they beat him up. They threw him in wells. They, they did all kinds of horrible things to this poor guy. But he had a tough ministry in a very difficult time. And so because of it, God forbid Jeremiah to marry. In chapter 16, verses 1 through 4, it says, The word of the Lord came to me, saying, You shall not take a wife, nor shall you have sons or daughters in this place, for thus says the Lord concerning the sons and daughters who are born in this place and concerning their mothers who bore them and their fathers who begot them in this land, they shall die gruesome deaths. They shall not be lamented, nor shall uh, they be buried, but they shall be like refuse on the face of the earth. They shall be consumed by the sword and by famine, and their corpses shall be meat for the birds of heaven and for the beasts of the earth." And because of that, God says, Jeremiah, don't take a wife. Don't bring children into this, into this world during this time. You remember in 1 Corinthians 7, Paul the Apostle recommended celibacy. 
in those times where God's people were undergoing severe persecution. And he was talking uh, back then about how Rome had begun to persecute the people of God. And so Paul said, look, it's not wrong to marry, but these are difficult times. Why don't you pray about staying single? Uh, it's going to take everything you got just to serve God and stay faithful to him uh, without having to worry about a wife and children at this time. So Paul said there are times when God's people are being persecuted so much that it's probably wiser not to marry just to serve God and, you know, pray that he will bring you through it safely. Well, Jesus himself in Matthew 24, verse 19 pronounced woes upon those with children and families during the tribulation period. Remember he talked about that woe unto those women who nursed during those days and so on? This is going to be a horrible period. And so I think it's not hard to see that God would call these 144,000 to literal celibacy for the kingdom's sake during this period. What about the spiritual interpretation? Well, as I said, nowhere in the Bible does it say that a woman defiles a man in the context of marriage, but a woman can defile a man if it's associated with sex that is being done in the context of pagan worship. And this was quite common. This was the big draw. You say, why would Israel leave the Lord God, Jehovah? Why would they leave him to worship Baal and Ashtoreth. I mean, God has taken such good care of them. He had worked miracles on their behalf. Why were they leaving in droves to follow, you know, Baal, uh, Baal and Ashtoreth? Well, because the worship of these pagan deities was done through sexual orgies. And that was the biggest draw. It was the free sex. Now, of course, all that free sex brought with it a lot of unwanted pregnancies, didn't it? So what do you do with all these children that you don't really want? You know, you, you, you wanted the sex, but you don't want the responsibility of taking care of the kids. So what they decided to do is they decided to, to offer them to Molech. And Molech was a, a god that was uh, cast out of iron or bronze, some metal that could be heated up pretty hot. And uh, he always had his arms out like this. And you would put this god Moloch in a fire pit, and, uh, and then people would uh, go through this ceremony with drum beats and uh, taking uh, conscious-altering drugs or getting drunk, and they would work themselves up into a kind of an altered state of consciousness almost with the drum beats and the yelling until finally uh, it reached the fever pits and they would lay their infant children into the arms of red hot, this red-hot idol burning them to death. And God said that was such a reprehensible thing. He said, you know, I never told you to do that. It never even came into my mind. But because you have engaged in these kind of horrific practices, you're going to be judged. And so pagan worship always had associated with it sex of some way, shape, or form. I mean, many of the, uh, the pagan temples were... Um, staffed with prostitutes or priestesses. And the men of the city would come down into the temple and have sex with the prostitutes as a form of worship. Now, these 144,000 kept themselves pure from false doctrine and from the sexual practices that went along with it during their time on the earth, during their ministry. 
You know, in the spiritual sense, the idea of being defiled with women, uh, I think, has a reference to false religious systems. You remember in uh, Revelation 2, verse 20, when Jesus was dictating to John a letter to the church in Thyatira. And at one point he talks about Jezebel. He calls her that woman, right, who seduced and defiled my people, he said. But in that context, he was talking about a religious system, primarily. See, by this time in the tribulation period, the one world false religious system has taken hold, which the Bible calls the great harlot, which these 144,000 uh, Jewish believers have not committed fornication with. Verse 8 uh, kind of relates to this. It says, another angel followed saying, Babylon has fallen, has fallen, that great city, because she has made all nations drink of the wine of the wrath of her fornication. When you see the word fornication in the scriptures, especially in Revelation, it could mean physical sexual fornication, or it could mean spiritual fornication, which means unfaithfulness to God by going after idols. And it says here that this false religious system, Babylon the Great, is called the city. It's also called a religious movement. You've been listening to Day by Day, the verse-by-verse Bible teaching ministry of Calvary Chapel in Elk Grove Village, Illinois, with Pastor Phil Ballmeyer. Today's message, as well as many other studies, can be heard and downloaded free of charge from our website at daybydayradio.org. From our website, you can contact us, order resources, read Pastor Phil's blog, and also subscribe to our daily podcast. We hope you'll pay us a visit. And remember to join us for Day by Day, Monday through Friday, here on this station. Thanks again for listening, and please join us again next time as we continue to study God's Word. Until then, may the Lord richly bless you and guide your steps as you walk with Him day by day. He said for